following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 16 to 23. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil on the spoil and do not and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have bought a gag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin, the sin for rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the wrong, the, the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Psalms chapter 32. A mass kill of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is for forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or I will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, overjoice and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We're continuing this morning our series. I've called it the Calibration Series. It's a way to start the new year, uh, to look intently at what the Bible has to say and, and where we're at with God and life in order for us to be realigned, so to speak, with him and his word, his, his truth. I've mentioned how, according to 2 Timothy 3, the Bible is our equipment for effective godly living. And when Paul said, the, penned those words, probably dictated them, to encourage his, uh, his younger um, one-time partner, Timothy, partner in ministry. When he referred to all scriptures inspired by God as our equipment for effective godly living, he was referring to what we now call the Old Testament. And sadly, very often, when the Old Testament is, is taught, it's very often taught as if it's the bad example the, 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 the way things were when things were really bad, when people couldn't live according to God's ways because of sin. And now with the coming of Jesus and the New Testament, now we have the new improved way of living. And we often use the Old Testament in terms of its, its bad examples and the New Testament becomes sort of the good examples. And that just is not the way scripture is, uh, how, that's not the way that God's truth is revealed to us in scripture in in actuality the the stories of what we call the old testament i prefer to call it the hebrew scriptures more in line with how it would have been understood by jesus and his followers um the the old testament is actually a reflection of life the way it really is and it shows us how god is available to people in the midst of the difficulties and evil of this life. Now, while I've, in so many different ways and occasions and in different places, I've tried to encourage people to uh, properly embrace the entire Bible, um, and I've spoken against a very negative view of, of the Old Testament, I have tended to also buy into the idea that with the coming of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how we have been given the vast resources of, of heaven, 
uh, made accessible to us because of what God has done through his son, I've tended to not fully accept how bad the world really is in which we live. And I could take the time to to share New Testament scriptures that that, that speak about the the evil nature of of the world that that we live in. And so I and I've done I've tended to downplay the evil of the world because I believe it's appropriate to emphasize and you've heard me say this that Jesus said in the end of Matthew all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and it's wrong to downplay the place and position of King Jesus in our world no matter how bad it gets there is a major difference between life before he came and life after he rose from the dead we serve God through King Jesus who rules and reigns not in its fullness but in a very effective and powerful way and I don't in any way ever want to downplay that that's why we could sing songs of great encouragement about the reality of God because those who trust in him know his power no matter how difficult it gets and we need to rise up and trust God with confidence in the midst of whatever difficulties we are facing that said it's also it's it's been wrong for me in my teaching to downplay the challenges to downplay how evil the world is in which we live and this the evil of the world in which we live and the forces that are that work against the gospel work that seek to thwart the plan of God which they will not succeed but they they are passionate to defame and to distract and to lure and to destroy they will not overcome but they are they are at work and those those powers that are so ingrained in the world around us all over the world have also affected affected the church and that has always been true it was true in the first century we read the book of acts we see the the divisions we see the um the misguidedness we see disciples struggling to follow in the ways of god and you have voices calling people to god's truth and calling people to god's love and calling people to repentance but it doesn't always go that way we spent a series looking at first john and we saw the challenges that the various churches that john was writing to were facing as they were following after false teachers that's in the first generation of the church people who were calling themselves followers of jesus we're we're being led astray into into false destructive ways of thinking and doing we see what john writes to the seven churches in the early part of the book of revelation where jesus threatens like to take away their place in 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 god's kingdom basically because they were turning churches churches were turning away 
to evil and turning away from God. So we like to think that with the coming of Jesus and we we grow up in a church and we're baptized, we're, we're, we, we say a prayer, we have an experience or whatever is your story, and we think that's it, we're good. That's it. End of story. That's so not what the Bible teaches, which is why we should be regularly recalibrating. That's what we should be doing day by day through, through Bible reading and prayer and with fellowship, encouraging one another, not tearing one another down and bringing us further into the pit, but encouraging each other unto the Lord. That's what we need to be doing every day. Then we take a day like today, once a week, to focus on that a little bit more. And then from time to time, a further focus, which is what I've been trying to do. And where, so where the series is leading is we're, we're preparing over several weeks, it's going to take us a, a few more weeks to get there, to a clash between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, between truth and evil, between goodness and, 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 and sin. We're going to be looking at the prophet Elijah and his confrontation um, on Mount Carmel. But in order to be able to look at that properly, we need to get a much broader context of the establishment of the kingdom of Israel and what that's all about. So last week, we did a biblical overview beginning with creation. We saw how God created a very good world. He gave human beings the responsibility to represent him in that world. Our first parents failed by turning from God's word and listening to the the words of Satan through the serpent. And by this way, they, they rebelled against God and brought corruption to themselves, to future generations, and to the entire creation. Things got so bad that God decided to destroy the world through, through a flood, but he was so committed to his creation project that he, he found a righteous man, Noah, and he started over again through them. That eventually leads us to the call of an elderly childless man to go to a foreign land. Abram, his name was later changed to Abraham, and through him and his sons, he established a chosen nation, the nation of Israel, through whom he would make himself known to the nations and bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. They find themselves trapped in slavery in Egypt as a, as a reality to them, but a picture of for all of us, for the whole world, that we are entrapped by sin and the tyranny of evil under Satan and his representatives like Pharaoh in their day. And it took God to come through and miraculously lead them out of slavery and bondage in, in Egypt. He then leads them to Mount Sinai where he reveals his word as a gift to the people of Israel that they would bear the the gift and the burden of carrying God's word and being an example to the nations. Um, Then he takes them into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Things go well for a, a short time and then there's anarchy and confusion. And it's against that backdrop that the uh, that a kingdom is established. The book of Judges ends with the words in Judges 21, verse 25: "In those days there were no there was no king in Israel; everyone did what was right in his own eyes." And what was true then is still true now. It's true in the world, and I know there's all sorts of kings, but there's supposed to be that there is only one true king. 
and the and the world's disregard for the truth of the gospel has caused and continues to cause great destruction. And it doesn't matter if it's Canada where things just normally seem to be really nice or we have images of other countries where things seem to be so uh, uh, so difficult and, and, and poor and hard. It, the, the, the forces of evil are the same, that if we don't submit to the king of all kings, then we end up doing what was what is right in our own eyes and bring about destruction upon destruction. And so it's in that context that Israel demands a king. And they and they demand a king, one that would be like the other nations. They they saw the nations all around. They saw that they had these rulers and the, the way it work. One ruler, if a, when a ruler died, usually his firstborn son would take over. And there was a bit of, of, of security in that and a consistency in that and predictability in that. And those are things that human beings prefer. Human beings do not want to do what we read about last week in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 that says that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't want an intimate relationship with our Father in heaven. We don't want to live with the uncertainty of not knowing today what we're going to do tomorrow. And what we want is we want predictability. We want um, uh, earthly security. We want to know that we're going to be okay before we face tomorrow's danger. But God wants us to be in personal, intimate relationship with him. And it's not because that God just wants to have his own way. It's because this is the way that we were designed to be. That when we rely on human achievement and human ability and self and and predictability and and our structures, we're um, we're actually... harming ourselves because we were not meant to live this way. Now, the interesting thing is that it appears that God had always planned for Israel to have a king. And of course, because one day Israel's king would be the king of the whole world. Where is he that was born king of the Jews, the Magi said in the first century? And so going all the way back to the end of Jacob's life, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, at the end of his life, he is he's speaking over his 12 sons. They are, they are the, the, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he has these words for his son Judah, in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is an early messianic prophecy that it would be through Judah that the great king of all the earth would one day come. And we know the Lord Jesus is of uh, the lineage of David, and David was of the lineage of Judah. So that's an early prophecy about a coming king. But also in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, Moses is is establishing God's word, God speaking through Moses to the, to the people, and addresses the issue of one day them having a king. So I'm going to read that, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over, over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall, it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up among his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, there's actually so much here, and I'm not going to spend too much time on these words in Deuteronomy. I mainly wanted to share that God was preparing the people to one day have a king. Uh, and interesting that the king had to make a copy of the Torah, of, of God's law given through Moses, and he was to have his own personal copy in a day when people didn't have copies of books readily. So he was actually, uh, and according to this, he was supposed to copy it out himself, which is a great way to learn it, um, and that he should read it all the days of his life. Um, and so, and that he was subject to God's law, which meant the word of God was over the political sphere in ancient Israel. And whether people are aware of this or not, this is where the modern concept of the rule of law comes from. So our foundational law in Canada is our constitution. And the, it begins with uh, the um, Charter of Rights and Freedoms that begins that this is all established under the supremacy of God and the rule of law. So our government and our government leaders are supposed to be subservient to the law. They decided, rightly so, and rooted in scripture, whether they knew it or not, they understood that there was an objective standard by which to live by and that no one, it doesn't matter how where you are in the in society so from the prime minister to everyone else we are all subject to the same law code now this goes back so this goes back to ancient israel so the king of israel never had the right to make up the rules as he went along he had to abide by god's ways just like everybody else so the, anyway hundreds of years after moses spoke these words, the people of Israel find themselves in this time of anarchy, of confusion, everybody doing their own thing, so to speak. And um, we read, uh, where are we here? So then all in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 to 5, we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered around and came to Samuel, who is a priest and prophet, at Ramah, a town, and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So it's a little confusing. It's And, and Samuel really reacts to this because basically this was a rejection of God. He, they were rejecting him and he had a special role as a judge 
over the over Israel, uh, but they saw that his sons weren't following it in his ways, and they just were so tired of it going well with a good leader and then falling apart after. And they, they thought that by establishing a kingdom with a king to, to rule, that things would be better. Now, so it isn't like it's, it's confusing. Um, on one hand, God said that it would be okay to have a king like the other nations. But here, and we don't have time to get in, in, in all of it, it seems it was wrong for them to demand a king. And it seems what's going on here is that their motivation was really off. So on one hand, it was okay to have a king like the other nations. On the other hand, they were not to have a king like all the other nations. And it seems what was going on is that they were looking at the other nations and were perceiving a certain kind of security and predictability that they were quote unquote enjoying, whether that's the real case or not, but that's you know, the grass is greener on the other side, right? And so they were they were looking at the other nations and then they were being different and people don't like being different. That's true then, it's still true now. And they, they just want to go along with that, you know, uh, the, everyone has a king. How come we don't have a king? So we want to have a king too. So it, on one hand, while it was okay to one day have a king, it does seem this was not yet God's timing. But at the same time, and, and this, I'm always a little frightened by this, is often, you know, we think God's in this in control in a particular kind of way. He's in control, but I don't think he's in control in the way that we think he's in control. Because one of the things that God does is he gives us what we want. Not always, thank him so much that not always, but often he gives us what we want. And that's what happened when God appointed Saul as the first king of Israel. Well, I want to look at Saul for a, a few moments, and and uh, and then we're going to talk about David briefly, and and then we're going to continue next week. So, um, so Saul started off Saul started off really well, but he loses focus pretty quickly, and um, we see in First Samuel 13, there's a scene. They're already Saul, like they're, people are excited. You know, Saul leads them in battle and they're, they're, they're doing well and, and all the rest. Um, and they're excited that there's somebody there like Saul who's courageous and, and able to gather the people at, to, to, to focus and to win battles. Um, but then there's a scene where he is, is waiting for the prophet Samuel to come. And Samuel was also a priest. And he's waiting for Samuel to come to do a, a sacrifice. And kings were not to do this. And so he was he was waiting and Samuel was delayed and he became impatient and he steps out of bounds and he disobeys God by doing the sacrifice. Then finally, um, Samuel shows up and tells him that how bad this really was and that God was going to God was going to find a man after his own heart to replace him and so this is the first hint that Samuel's no Saul's sons would not reign um, after him so he's here and it also sounds like he's going to be replaced which doesn't really happen it happens in a sense that his place as a leader begins to diminish but he never loses his his position actual position as king um, so things begin to crumble 
because Saul stepped out of bounds. In 1 Samuel 14, there's the story of they're, they're going after these enemies and he makes a ridiculous vow. And he says, if anybody eats any food before we completely finish our enemies, like they'll be killed. And uh, his son, Jonathan, who is like a second in command kind of person or high up in the military, um, does this wonderful act of faith and, and, and sneaks up on these people and God gives him a great victory. Um, and then afterwards, when Saul hears that Jonathan, who didn't even hear about the vow that Saul made, um, had had eaten a little bit of honey when he was completely wiped out. Um, he hears about this, he just says, you have to die. He wanted to kill his own son because of this ridiculous vow that he made and Saul's own people had to stop the dad from killing the son. Like, so Saul is, 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 is going off the rails. In 1 Samuel uh, 15, which was read for us earlier, um, we read there how, uh, there he was had been assigned to wipe out these these ungodly people so saul had um against what god said told him to do remember we're supposed to live by every word that comes from the mouth of god but saul thought he had better ideas and so he decided to allow the king to live and and the best animals and uh, when samuel comes to confront him he he responds to Samuel's rebuke with this, look what I did. Look, look, I did this wonderful thing. By I, I killed all the people, but not all the animals, and I spread it over the king. And this is where Samuel says the words, how, how wrong it was, and it was, and to obey is better than sacrifice. And so he's told he's going to be completely rejected as king. And so we see in Saul, indeed, a king like the nations. He was tall and handsome, he was popular and successful, but he was impatient, self-seeking, a people pleaser, and jealous. God finds a man after his own heart in David, who we'll talk about in a moment, um, but he's jealous of him instead of recognizing his failings. In, um, he sees what God is doing instead of going along with what God wanted, he becomes jealous of God's man, of, of, of David. I mentioned he threatened to kill his own son. He, there's a scene where he orders the murders of, of several, actually 85 priests, because one of them helped David. He was so obsessed in jealousy and his desire to preserve his place and position, he had become blind to all that was good and right. And near the end of his life, before his final battle, the battle in which he and his son Jonathan were killed, he actually consults a sorceress. Earlier in his reign, he did what was right, and he removed all the sorcerers from the land based on God's word. But then when God was no longer speaking to him, he became desperate, and he, he sought out a sorceress to call up the, the prophet Samuel who had died by that time. And so he resorts to this, this horrific evil um, because he wasn't truly, um, he wasn't a man after God's own heart. And so in the midst of Saul's own demise, 
God finds David. And we're not going to take a lot of time to talk about him, but as a reminder that David was a man of courageous faith. Unlike Saul, he was a seeker of God and of God's honor. Now, some people point out that the wrongs that David did, and there's two recorded ones. Later, late in life, there was this census that he took. It's not clear what exactly was wrong, but it was wrong. But he recognized that he was wrong. And earlier, the one, the, the more terrible one, it appears, is his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and how he arranged for the murder. Well, that uh, arranged for her husband to be in the, uh, the line of fire in battle and ensured that he would die in battle as a way to cover up his wrong. And so, you know, here's a man after God's own heart. And yet, and it's well over a year ago and we talked about this, when David was confronted about his sin, he repented. And this is what a man after God's heart does, that even when he does wrong, he comes around, he owns up to his wrong, and God reestablishes his relationships. Uh, relationship. Now, we never know what would have happened with Saul, if what would have happened if he would have repented. But our understanding from Scripture is that if he would have recognized his wayward ways um, and repented of his wrongs, then he would not have, have ended the way that he did. And so in, in closing, what and what we're going to be doing is we're going to move on. We're going to again look a little bit at David and move into Solomon and see how the establishment of God's kingdom comes to this um, great uh, pinnacle um, and splendor and then begins to fall apart. And re- remember, we're doing this to understand life, life back then, life today, and so that we can be walking with God today in the way that he wants to. But what I would like to say here is, looking back on the life of Saul in particular, it's tough to do the right thing. I don't point my finger at Saul and go, oh, what a guy, you know? He was chosen by God and God was with him. And then this, that, and the other thing happened. He just kind of, kind of wimped out sort of thing, like, oh my. That's not how we're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to read about these characters and we're supposed to look at them like we're looking at a mirror because we are to learn from the good and bad examples of these people. What isn't readily noticed in the story where Samuel preserved the life of the king when he shouldn't have and kept the best animals when he shouldn't have and he he made it sound like he was doing the right thing. At one point, verse 10, 1 Samuel 15, we read, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, which sounds noble, but he's he's got he's got deep, deep issues. He's Saul is the commissary is the commissary the right word? Uh, uh, politician. He plays the field and he's doing he does this right here. He says, For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Now he's saying this after he said, I did the right thing, I did the right thing, look what I did, look what I did. So he said, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul did what he did because 
of the people. He listened to the people instead of listening to God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Adam and Eve failed in that and brought corruption upon all of us. And that misguided decision that they did has been the same misguided decision that has gotten us into trouble over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter if we belong to the Lord or don't belong to the Lord. And when we turn from the word of God and we begin to listen to other voices, we bring destruction upon ourselves and those around us. And we need to recalibrate. We need to recalibrate to the Lord and his word, we need to allow him to examine our lives and see where we have become uh, um, misaligned, where we're listening to other voices, where we prefer the comfort of other people's approval of over and above the approval of God. And oh, my brothers and sisters, where is life? Where is joy? Where is goodness? Where is eternity? Is it in the comfort of other people's approval? Or is it in being in sync with the master of the universe and knowing him through a personal relationship with his son? That is where we find peace. That is where we find protection. That is where we find goodness. That is where we find success and fruitfulness and and, and on and on and on. It's found nowhere else. It will cost us, but we gain everything. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness in your son and that he demonstrated to us and to the world that there is victory over sin, victory over evil, victory over death itself by giving ourselves fully to you. We thank you that as we walk with him and walk his road together with him, we can know his life. Forgive us, Father, for the ways we have listened to self and to others over and against your word. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca Thank you.